This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So among our most read stories on the Bloomberg today, former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker weighing in on presidents uh, really trying to pressure the Fed. There's so much going on, and and certainly President Trump has been vocal once again, critical of the Fed again this week. Um, Paul Volcker knows, though, about the difficult relationship sometimes between the presidents uh, and and the Federal Reserve. Uh, It's all in his new autobiography. It's called Keeping at It, The Quest for Sound Money and Good Government. It's been written with Bloomberg Markets editor Christine Harper. She joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Um, So nice to have you here with us. Jason and I uh, got to talk to you a little bit about the book uh, this week. First of all, tell us about the process and and sitting down and doing this with Paul Volcker. Well, he's one of the most amazing public servants that this country has had over the last century. He's 91. He's as sharp as a tag. He has served under six presidents in the Treasury Department as Federal Reserve Chairman, um, and most recently with uh, Barack Obama as uh, uh, head of the President's Economic Recovery Advisory Board. He's worked for Democrats and Republicans. He's very clear-eyed. He has is best known for stopping the you know double-digit inflation of the 1970s and 80s. But he also had a front row seat to the end of Bretton Woods um, in 1971 when Richard Nixon took the country off the gold standard. Nobody really understands uh, monetary policy and sort of global economics as well as Paul Volcker, and he's an amazing man to work with. And and what are the amazing things about these excerpts from the book, Christine, are, first of all, the scope of history that, that is embedded in them. And it really takes us, both you and Paul in this book, really take us inside the room and inside this, as Carol alluded to, this rather tortured relationship that the president has always had uh, with the Federal Reserve. And it's interesting, I think, especially – I mean so timely, obviously – but an interesting reminder that maybe there's nothing new uh, under the sun. Tell us about these encounters that uh, Well, there's had. so much in the book. Uh, the book is called Keeping at It. Um, it comes out next week that uh, while we were working on it over the last year, we kept saying, oh, my God, this is in the news. This is in the news. This is in the news. Uh, it's a lot of the issues he was handling and that he addresses in the book keep coming up. One of them, obviously, the independence of the Fed. As he describes in the book, uh, he was in the Treasury Department when LBJ was president. LBJ very much uh, was opposed to a raising interest rates and put some pretty strong pressure on then-chairman, the longest-ever-serving Fed chairman, William McChesney Martin. So he recounts that meeting in the Oval Office. He also uh, talks about, and this has gotten a lot of attention this week, the uh, he, he, I think he's, he, he's first to really, it's the first time he's really talked about when he was summoned to the White House to talk to Ronald Reagan. This was a year after he'd been reappointed to the Fed by Reagan, and it was an election year, 1984. And instead of going to the Oval Office, he was called into the library, and his memory is that James Baker, the um, then chief of staff, told him the president is ordering you not to raise rates. So he's seen this before. And and the president, I just love the standing judge in part because President Ronald Reagan, who was n- not known to, you know, just sort of keep quiet, kept entirely quiet and <laughs> essentially let the chief of staff say what needed to be said. Exactly. Sort of preserving deniability, presumably. So, I mean, but of course, what's different about both of those circumstances is they weren't public. They were doing this behind closed doors. They were mm-hmm. trying to exert their influence. 
they may or may not have succeeded. I mean, and, and, you know, he also writes about how Arthur Burns had this relationship with Nixon where a lot of people thought Nixon got his way with uh, then-Fed chairman Arthur Burns. But it was all behind closed doors. You couldn't see it. And, of course, what we're seeing today with Trump being so vocal, so public, it is different. Does he worry about the independence of the Fed because uh, you've got a president who is being so outspoken and so vocal and it's out there front and center? It's not behind closed doors? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, he he has been impressed by what he's seen from um, today's Fed chairman. So he has some good things to say about Jay Powell. Um, but uh, he's always worried about the independence of the Fed. And, of course, what he reminds us of is that the, the executive, the, the president, has no official power over right. the Fed. It's all the Congress. So what, what really matters is whether the members of Congress are willing to stick with the Fed. So far, it looks like they are, but, you know, that can always change. Yeah. So I want to ask you about something that comes up in the book specifically along these lines, which is the, the the power and influence of the chairman of the Federal Reserve, because it changed dramatically when Paul Volcker came into this role during the Carter administration, correct? Yes, yes. I mean, so uh, like, like I said, I mean, Arthur Burns is somewhat remembered as having become too acquiescent to Richard Nixon's desire to keep the economy growing so that he could get reelected. And so a lot of people blame him for allowing the inflation to really get going in the 70s. And then Carter appointed this uh, businessman, um, Bill Miller, who really didn't have the kind of chops to get his way. And so by the time Volcker brought, came in as a Fed, people really weren't, weren't sure central banks could get it done. Arthur Burns himself gave a speech saying, you know, I don't think uh, central banks can necessarily do anything more. You know, it was sort of a throw up your hands kind of speech. It was like, called, it was called the anything, agony folks. of central banking. <laughs> and it was this big public speech. And at that very moment that he was giving that speech in Belgrade at the IMF meeting, Volcker was flying back to Washington and getting ready to th- hold a Saturday night press conference that changed monetary policy forever. And by the time he left, you know, more than a decade later, people had enormous respect for the Federal Reserve. And so one person can make a big difference, you know, having that ability to, to stick up for what's right. He believes fervently in the importance of, uh, of uh, monetary policy and being independent because price stability is very important. It's the it's sort of root of all economic growth in his view. I love when you talked with us earlier this week and you talked about how Paul Volcker really had a sense of civic duty. And this comes from his dad. I mean, you know, you look at leaders today, some who just kind of want the power and the position and the title, it seems like he saw it very differently. Yeah. I mean, more than anything else, this is why he wrote this book, because he is consumed with this concern about the state of our public servants and the basically the people who are just getting stuff done in government, not having the support and the training and the wherewithal to do the do their job correctly, and that is undermining uh, trust in government and allowing politicians to kind of take shots at government and and chip away at it. And you know you see these relatively sort of hostile people being being uh, appointed to agencies that they don't really want to exist. So um and that's a big problem and and but he doesn't say it isn't all new today. It's it's been kind of growing. And so he's he's a very strong believer in better training public servants and his father as you mentioned was himself a public servant who turned around the town of Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, by just managing it really effectively. He was an engineer by training. He believed in getting things done efficiently. He, you know, made a big difference. And, and Paul Volcker's childhood was consumed with this idea that that was the best way to spend your life. 
So the excerpt from the book, which is out next week, the book that is, is out next week. The excerpt uh, is available right now. It will be featured uh, in Bloomberg Business Week magazine this week. Christine Harper, editor of Bloomberg Markets Magazine, co-author with Paul Volcker of Keeping At It. It is a phenomenal read. We're so proud of Christine. And I can dare I just say. say there's some pretty cool pictures in there, right? Great pictures. <laughs> it really is amazing. Yeah, and, it really takes you know, and I'll mention also there's an excerpt on Bloomberg Opinion today, uh, another excerpt of the book that is some of Paul Volcker's views on inflation. Not right. surprisingly, catching a lot of attention out yeah. there given how, as Christine mentioned, how incredibly timely it is. And that historical perspective, his experience, it's just it's breathtaking. Well, think about the cycles he saw. And if anybody understood inflation... This is somebody who certainly did and had to deal with massive inflation, something that I think you've got a whole generation that doesn't even get. Christine Harper, thank you so much. Thank you, Carol and Jason. And everybody should check out the book, Keeping at It, The Quest for Sound Money and Government, Good Government, written by uh, or with Bloomberg Markets Editor Christine Harper. Everybody hurts sometimes. All right, a little REM for you on a Wednesday afternoon. Topical because the market's are feeling some pain these days. We want to understand why and maybe what's underneath that. Welcoming back to our show, Ann Maletti. She is Senior Portfolio Manager with Wells Fargo Asset Management. They oversee about $483 billion. It's billion with a B. Uh, she is based in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, but here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Ann, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. So earnings is on the top of everyone's mind. Uh, right now and certainly seems to be playing through the markets, not in a good way. Uh, What are you seeing out there? Actually, earnings have been quite good um, for all of 2018. Earnings look like they're going to be up 20% for the year. Uh, The story really has been about multiple compression, which started early in the year and has worsened throughout October. And I think that's happening because investors are looking at 2019. And if you think third quarter, Reporting season, investors tend to want some, you know, preview of what 19 looks like. It's all about the outlook. Exactly. All about the outlook, all about what 19 is going to bring us. And we have an incredibly difficult comp after having 20% earnings growth in 2018. And so I think investors are getting nervous about that. Multiple compressions starting to happen because 20% earnings growth is unlikely to happen. I'm always curious, how, how do we do this when you're, you're talking about a year-over-year comparison, mm-hmm. right? And when things, you know, were significant, you know, strong, right? And then you've got to compare. So does that just make it not as good? Like, how are we supposed to look at numbers that way? Because you're still growing, right? But in comparison, right. not as strong as you were. I know. You know, it's funny because... But, like, how do you do it as an investor? Yeah. Do you take a look at a company and say, well... Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's still a mix for me. It's how much... Um, of course, it's good if a company is growing faster than his, its historical average. But it really depends on how much is priced into the stock. And so with this multiple compression, you know, we've gone from 18 times earnings in 2017 down to 15 times earnings for the overall market. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of multiple compression, um, about as much multiple com- compression in a short amount of time that we've seen in the last seven years. And so that brings to me, it makes me feel better, actually, as we head into 19, that the market now is taking some of the fluff out. And so, yes, Earnings are unlikely to be as good in 2019, 
but the market has adjusted and is adjusting for that now. And so, you know, it could put us in a better place for 2019 than where we were in September. And geopolitics, is that a black swan? Are you worried about a black swan there? Or are you worried about more about the sort of drip, drip, drip? Because Mm -hmm. we do hear about Iran. We hear about Saudi Arabia. We hear about China. Mm -hmm. We hear about Italy. We hear about name it, name it, name it. Uh, Is the aggregate of that enough that it changes the way you invest? Or do you have to go down a level to figure out how to play it? Well, it doesn't really change how we invest. Um, certainly, in, in, it does influence the multiples that we use on the names that we're buying. So we have to make some adjustments for what we believe growth w- rates will be for our companies. Um, so it does have some influence on that. But to your point, I think there's some black swan, some degree of probability that a black swan event exists. What I don't think does exist is the possibility that things turn out really well there. And so that could be the bigger surprise, that we do get an agreement with China, that the flow-through on the global scale looks better than the market believes today. That would be the real (laughs) surprise. The white swan would be the real surprise. But certainly the dribble on of negative news weighs heavily on investors and weighs heavily on the market. I got to stop for a second. So what's the black swan event? I mean, you're not talking another financial crisis or something. Like, no. what are you, what are yeah. you, I mean, because that's pretty extreme. So yes. like, what, more what, on the geopolitical side. Like yeah. a war? No, I mean, I think more a the more black, war? I think the black swan event, and, and you know, we never really know what it is, right? And all the things that we really right. truly worry about tend less to be the things that really actually happen. It, it always tends to be a bigger surprise. But you could see some tougher negotiation stance from China to the U.S. Do you guys ever think about, forgive me for interrupting, because yes, no, I'm just sorry. thinking about some yeah. of the conversations J- Jason and I have been having for our weekend show, um, is that the changing political landscape, geopolitical landscape, and Who's in charge and the alliances and the U.S. kind of stepping back. We've seen that with the situation in Saudi Arabia Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to human rights issues. Mm -hmm. We've seen kind of Turkey take the lead here, Mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. But we see uh, some of our European allies, some of our Middle Eastern allies, you know, picking up and and doing deals with Russia, with China. Mm -hmm. Does any of this have a conversation back at Wells Fargo where you guys are thinking, okay, what's going on here? There's always a way to make make money. I get that. But I'm just curious how this might play in. Yeah, no, certainly. Certainly there's conversations and a lot of people that are doing a lot of top-down work. A lot of my work is bottom-up, you know, looking at stocks from a, from a bottom-up yeah. perspective. But certainly we talk to companies about these kind of things and what they're seeing in the businesses that they're in because it's important. And um, but, but what, you know, for all the rhetoric that is out there and the stuff that's on the news every day, there's a lot of settlement in some of these deals that end up over time. You know, sometimes there's there's a lot of um, anxiety over what's going to be done. You know, the Mexico-U.S. Right. deal, the Canadian-U.S. deal, that deal. And then, you know, kind of there's a deal at the end of the day, and you go, well, was it that much different than it was before? Maybe not. Um, and so it's, it's a little difficult. This president clearly does deals in a different way, and it right. makes the market nervous. You know, it's interesting you say that about the deal-making. I had lunch today with a longtime investment banker who you know, probably tends toward the Republican side of things. Mm-hmm. 
And it feels more and more like a lot of the deal guys, at least, are looking at looking at it exactly through that lens and and we were talking about the you know NAFTA 2.0 the USMCA and he essentially said look we got there he's like yeah it wasn't pretty and there was a lot of you know fussing and fighting but here we are we did it deal looks pretty good seems fair right life goes on and he made some concessions which you know he sounds like he's never going to do that there's this very hard line and so he being president yes And so, you know, again, can the white swan event happen with China? Possibly. Um, And I know there's been a lot of controversy because he's going to meet with the Chinese president. I know, you know, there's been controversy over what's going to happen. I like that there's a low expectation. There has been high expectations in the past and nothing happens. Right. I like, as an investor, low expectations are the best place to be. Huh. Yes. Really interesting perspective. Anne Maletti, Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management. Uh, You're based out in Menominee Falls, but here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. Great to be with you. Excellent perspective. Really appreciate the time. And I just want to point out that they are selectively uh, picking through some of the energy, industrials, and financials names. And those are some of the groups that have been kind of beat up this year. So that's uh, some of the investment uh, strategies that they're looking at. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us to the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Just about 10 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Wayne Wicker is back with us, Chief Investment Officer at Vantage Point Funds. $33 billion in assets under management based in the nation's capital, but uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Nice to have you here. Timely to have you here because Jason and I are watching uh, the equity markets, and we're pretty much at our lows of the session. We are now down about 8.9% on the S&P from just the high on September 20th. So quite a reversal in about a month. What's going on here? Is it just a revaluation of the market or something more significant, something underlying the trade here? Yeah, so Carol, I think that uh, what we're seeing is a recalibration of, of expectations, but it's really emanating from two types of fear, right? One, that interest rates are moving higher, and then uncertainty on what's going on globally with uh, trade and tariffs. That fear over interest rates, though, is it a fear? I mean, it's a reality. Mm-hmm. They, it's, they're still low historically, yeah. but the pace of increases is moving up. Well, and I think that the uh, market is acknowledging the fact that there may be more than they had originally thought, right? And mm-hmm. so when we look at uh, where the Fed is today and some of the comments that they made earlier this month, I think it threw the market off a little bit and uh, provided them with a greater uncomfort, really, that uh, they may go farther than people had originally anticipated. So, Wayne, we're getting deeper and deeper into earnings season now. But like early on, we got some nice results from the financials who had been beaten up for the bulk of the year so far. You know, nice little pop for some of the the big banks. And yet the mood has soured a little bit, shall we say, (laughs) uh, over the past few trading days. uh, Earnings really having a hand in, in driving the market lower. What are you hearing from earnings either in the numbers or in the commentary that you think may be underneath this? So you're right, Jason. We went from 
trying to climb a wall of worry, which uh, markets typically do, to having a mountain of doubt out there about what the future You've is You've been working be. on that, right? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, you know, it just kind of comes to you once in a while. Wall of doubt, all right. <laughs> you should trade You know he that. studied journalism. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, so I think that what has happened here is we've seen two great quarters where every time you had corporate earnings coming out, Everybody was very, very positive about what had gone on earlier this year with tax cuts and the uh, follow-on impacts. This quarter, you do see a little bit of uh, a situation where not everybody is uh, beating those uh, earnings numbers. Look at AT&T today coming out or right. some other uh, Caterpillar yesterday. So it is not the same confluence of earnings beats and the continuity of the comments that you saw the first couple of quarters. And I think combined with some of the other fears that the market has, that, that has given investors pause to a certain extent. But is it because the underlying economic fundamentals, the underlying market, overall macro market fundamentals have changed significantly because, I mean, Verizon, right, rallied yesterday. So we do see individual cases and investors Mm -hmm. are looking at the story, the stock story, the company story and trading based on that information. But I'm trying to get, is there something, I don't know, you know, we we start to talk about a recession potentially, maybe in another couple years or a year and a half, who Mm -hmm. knows? Or sooner. Right, or sooner. But it, so is there something underlying in terms of those macro fundamentals that have changed? So, Carol, I think if we step away and at the end of this earnings quarter look to see how in aggregate earnings have increased, and I think analysts right now are suggesting another 20% uh, quarter, uh, we're going to be able to see that there are, uh, as we get later on in the cycle, there are going to be certain companies, whether it is due to uh, the inability to grow organically or things like, I think, today with AT&T, with their recent merger, that are going to uh, have stock-specific problems. I mean, that that's positive for bottom-up right. stock pickers uh, where you haven't had that luxury in the past. But I think in general, coming back, Carol, to your question, is there something significantly uh, that has changed in, in the markets today? I think you still see that secular growth, albeit uh, probably moving down next yeah. year. We all acknowledge that. Uh, but there's nothing that is going to suggest at this point in earnings calls that things are falling off a cliff. So i got to ask you, because one of the things that jumped out in, in our prep notes before we talked to you was this idea of uh, – getting more or deeper into defense. It's actually a theme we've heard a couple times across the course of this week. What's driving that? Is it economical? Is it the way budgets are playing out? Is it geopolitics? What's your conviction there? Yes, I think it's all of the above, right? Uh, So when we think about that and uh, thinking about aerospace and defense, it's the one area, at least on Capitol Hill, close to where our offices are, that both Republicans and Democrats agree on is the fact that we're going to spend more money on on defense next year. And when you think about some of the other things that have happened this summer, uh, when I was with you earlier this Mm -hmm. summer, uh, NATO had just uh, agreed to uh, uh, help out in some of that, which is going to pull forward demand, I think, uh, incremental to what we see in the United States. Well, you've had President Trump kind of saying to everybody, hey, that 2% of GDP yeah. Yeah, in terms of defense spending to help the world or whatever. Pony up. Yeah, pony up. Do it already. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's so that's exactly been moved it. forward. Right. 
Um, interesting, interesting. Uh, I don't know. I had something else and it like lost my mind. Tesla, like Tesla's going to come out today. Could that be a market turner? Or again, that's just an individual story. I think that's an individual story. Yeah. You know, uh, everybody's enthused about uh, what the next thing Elon Musk is going to say or do. But yeah. I don't or think tweet. that is in, or tweet. <laughs> but it's not indicative, I think, of what the general economy is doing at the moment. So Great stuff. Wayne Wicker, Chief Investment Officer of Vantage Point Funds, overseeing about $33 billion based down in the nation's capital, where it's all happening, it feels like. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.